It's Dostazapod, the first Dostazapod in many weeks. Uh, I just got back from Italy, had a wonderful trip, and I am landing here as things are blurring into hyperspace because there's a lot going on production-wise and everything is leading right up to Toy Pizza Con in July, which uh, is only the first milestone for the rest of the year. Uh, I think in many regards, 2023 has been relatively sleepy, but that all changes now. We're pressing the gas, we're accelerating forward, and we are going to reach the singularity. So, strap in, it's Dostazapod. Big congratulations to uh, my friends who got married over in Italy. Uh, wonderful, wonderful ceremony, incredible trip. I, I kind of, uh, leading up to departing for this, I wanted to close the store and just not do anything for a couple days. And that included not really playing music, not writing songs, just truly kind of grinding everything to a halt in preparation for this. And then going on this trip and not having my normal, uh, you know, trappings and my normal routine and just kind of seeing what happened. And uh, I think it was good mentally, you know, it, it really uh, cleared my head in many ways. Also, this was kind of opportune timing because uh, Goss Armor is in production right now. I'm trying very hard, as is the factory, to get the AFOTM version and our prototype, uh, I forget what we call it, prototype B, prototype 2, getting those shipped to me within the next couple days, really, so that I can kind of fulfill Action Figure of the Millennia Club and get those out to everybody, as well as all the pre-orders for Black Satellite and beyond. Uh, in addition to that, there is also some kind of minor but secretive and pretty interesting revised tooling that is at the uh, paint sample stage now, and that's pretty exciting. That will likely make its appearance in Action Figure of the Millennia Club, no surprise there, but not this go around probably the next cycle maybe possibly something that debuts at toy pizza con we will see there's also the explosion of card slicers to contend with which there's a a very sharp uprise uh probably the biggest easily the biggest in card slicer history and that is because of the fan engagement and people posting what they got in their booster packs the community trading amongst themselves uh, the packs constantly selling out. I, I really can't make enough quick enough. And, um, you know, at this sort of moment in time, I needed to kind of buckle down and create a bunch of brand new card slicer cards, which I did on the flights there and back. And so, um, I've got to get those into production. I want to do a special toy pizza con card slicer deck as well, which may or may not feature some of the artists that are attending. And, uh, you know, special takes on their characters. That's also in the works. There's just, there's so much going on right now. It's pretty, pretty exhausting, but pretty exciting. And uh, like I said before, we've kind of been asleep the first half of this year, and now it's all overdrive. Uh, you know, we have a sequence of events happening that uh, is really going to change the face of Knights of the Slice in many ways. And I think obviously the biggest part of that is the Goss armor and its debut. Um, it's going to be a seismic shift. I know that 
patrons who have been following it closely, every, you know, they're all very keyed into this and excited, but there's so much more context to this once you get the figure in hand. I don't think photos do it justice. I don't think the experience is full and complete until I get that out to everybody. And because we're within, you know, a week or two of that happening, hopefully, avoiding any delays, um, you know, I'm very amped up. I'm very juiced. I'm, I'm goosed. I'm in a goose suit, to be honest with you. It's an old circus term. You know, we put them in a little bit of a goose suit. But anyway, that's kind of uh, what's going on toy pizza-wise. And look, cut me some slack. This is going to be a bit rambling. I, I do have jet lag, and I'm kind of trying to recalibrate here. So it's going to be top of mind and probably a little scattered. But um, that's everything we got going on work-wise, at least that I can share. Tons of exciting developments. And uh, we got things going on on the toy and production front. We got things going on in the card slicer front. And we got things going on with the Jacket Age manga that are going to be really, really good. I would like to debut maybe a small Ashcan preview of that story. Uh, the art that has been posted so far on Patreon in the serialized version of Jacket Age, it's all changed already. It's being upgraded. And uh, I think the final print version is going to be very different from... The early sneak peeks I've shown everybody, but I think it's going to be pretty radical and awesome. So I'm excited about that. So work-related stuff aside, Italy, how was it? Highlights, things like that. Well, from our sort of small-minded hobby collector perspective, not a ton to report in terms of interesting finds and things like that. I, As I was telling Matt Dowdy yesterday when we sort of got briefly caught up after my trip, um... Having traveled first to Europe when I was 17 as part of a, a class trip, we went to Spain and France, and then having traveled in the early aughts as part of Striker Entertainment and really covering quite a bit of ground in Europe, as those were the markets I was tasked with, uh, and then, you know, traveling now in, in sort of the, uh, the 20s, um, it's remarkable how homogenized and uh, the sort of globalization has become. Now, in those previous two eras of travel, one being in like 1997 and the other being, you know, 2000, late uh, first decade of the 2000s and, and the 10s, uh, there was lots of surprising and interesting and unique toys and comics and books and things like that to find uh, in any of these countries. Uh, if you go back to my... Hong Kong and Japan travel videos on Toy Pizza on the YouTube. I go to the Toys R Us that still exists in Hong Kong. This was prior to the pandemic. And largely, the figures and the surprises and the, uh, you know, Pacific Rim exclusive merchandise that I used to find when I traveled during my Jazzwares days, those were all gone. It was all pretty much American product. And that is certainly the case with this Italy trip. Now, there's always going to be sort of Gormiti. That is kind of like the homegrown hero of uh, Italian toy lines. And I did find a little bit of Gormiti stuff that was interesting. But largely everything at every toy store, in the flea markets, places like that, it's Funko Pop, it's Disney and Marvel. It is the same shit that we find here. And this is a starkly unique difference and change from having traveled internationally, you know, in the 2010s, let's say. Uh, 
it has truly become this monolithic idea, this culture. And I think that's kind of sad because it does make everything the same. It smooths everything out. It all looks the same. I can buy the same, you know, 12-inch, $9.99 Spider-Man figure with limited articulation in Target as I can at a, you know, 200-year-old Italian toy store. Um, It's... I don't see this as a good thing, right? This is an incredibly boring development in humankind. As my girlfriend and I were walking around Galleria Academia Venezia, God, terrible with a terrible with Italian. The the Venice uh, Gallery Academy, which was uh, founded by Napoleon, I believe, we're looking at all these incredible masterworks of Italian and Venetian artists. And the entire museum is largely uh, based on the Bible, right? It's all Catholic imagery. And, you know, my girlfriend remarked, like, didn't they paint anything else? And as I explained to her, this was the Marvel Cinematic Universe of the time, right? And I think that's very apropos. Uh, Our friends got married in this enormous, ornate, gilded basilica from uh, the 700s, if you can imagine that. We don't have anything that old here. Um, And, you know, the intricacies of the artwork and the ceilings and the frescoes and everything, it's all overwhelming and, and, uh, you know, stirs the imagination and really stimulates you. And this was the equivalent of going to the movies and watching you know, the latest Marvel blockbuster, Um, although a bit more profound for people. But that was entertainment back then, going to church. There was not sort of the the same (laughs) opportunities for distraction that we have here. So that's sort of the, the current frame of mind I have here, is drawing these parallels between the era I find myself in now and this ancient and historic era. And I do think that if the best our culture can do is this kind of unified Disney uh, sort of leviathan that not only encompasses streaming and theatrical, but also product and also the store shelves across the globe, um, you know, is that the pinnacle of humankind? I, I'm, I'm left scratching my head and wondering. But in any case, I digress there. Um, we started the trip off in Venice, and Venice is a storybook land. It, it, it truly is It is like walking around a movie set, which is kind of a, a horrible thing to say. In fact, it's surreal because our lives have been exposed to Venice in different ways, but all always as a sort of facsimile of that, whether it's going to Epcot or going to Vegas, Uh, our American culture is sort of doing a very poor imitation of what Venice actually is. And uh, it it kind of creates this dissonance when you're there. It feels kind of surreal, even though this is the authentic article. This is what, you know, uh, most of Western culture has sort of based its aesthetics and artistic leanings on, at least one of the foundational parts of it. So going to the actual source of it, uh, just kind of, it, it, it befuddles you, let's say. 
Uh, but an incredibly beautiful city, incredibly clean, uh, picturesque, uh, easy to navigate. Now, there's no cars in Venice. You're going to walk everywhere and you're going to do a lot of walking and you're going to get lost a million times. It is kind of like a labyrinth. There's tiny little alleyways that connect everything. Um, it's a gorgeous place. I would absolutely recommend anyone go to Venice. It's also very easy to get around and converse. You know, everybody speaks English. Everybody I found was incredibly friendly. Uh, truly, uh, you know, a, a really good place uh, in terms of service industry and waiters and, you know, catering to people visiting. Like, all of that was fantastic, and, and it, was a, it was a great time. All of Italy, surprisingly, is incredibly conscientious about gluten-free and serving things like that. Uh, they are not at all concerned or conscientious, it seems, in non-dairy cooking because everything has cheese and, and they, uh, you know, they, they make a lot of allowances and have very clear, there seems to be a sort of industry-wide directive to, uh, about food allergens and things like that. So it is really tailor-made to that. Every menu has the same sort of disclaimers about, uh, allergens and menus, at least in the parts I went to, which is, you know, largely touristy parts, uh, they call out everything and they offer substitutions and, and really pretty easy place to kind of, uh, navigate if you have, uh, dietary concerns. We then went to Lido, which is, uh, a tiny little beach area. One side of the island is a lagoon. The other side of the island is, uh, the Adriatic Sea and you can walk the entire distance. You know, it's pretty, pretty small area. But it felt very much like being on the French Riviera or being at the Cannes Film Festival. Gorgeous little town, uh, lots of cafes, beautiful beaches. The, the sand was just like super soft. Um, I loved it there. I, I think if I had to go back, I would stay in Lido. Beautiful place, highly recommended. Uh, and then we had to, of course, go to Rome for the actual event. And I gotta say, Coming from Venice and especially Lido and going to a enormous, busy, congested city like Rome, it's a bit of a downgrade. It is, uh, I mean, Rome has the benefit of all this history and all these amazing sites and this ancient architecture, but it is incredibly crowded, incredibly busy. Uh, the parts I were in were very dirty. You know, it's, it matches Manhattan in many respects. There's, there's a lot of trash everywhere. Uh, sanitation does not seem to be a big concern. Um, so for me and my kind of what I like to do in a, in a vacation and, and <laughs> the amount of rest and relaxation I, I like to seek doesn't really gel uh, with a person like me. But the upside is I got to go to pretty amazing places, including Cura de Pompeii, which is where Julius Caesar was murdered. Um, it is a pretty underwhelming looking place. You know, we, I, I think of the HBO series Rome and, you know, this huge marbled, uh, sort of auditorium and, it, you know, reality never really matches fiction in that regard, but to stand there and sort of be, you know, in the same spot as all these things that transpired, you know, that one being what would be 2000 
40 years ago, 2060 years ago, something like that. It's, uh, it's pretty phenomenal. Uh, I also got to go and see the Pantheon, which is so enormous you can't even take a picture of it. And, uh, you know, just th- this truly ancient history surrounding you at every turn is, it's, uh, it's quite a feeling. Our final day, we went to this great big uh, outdoor flea market, which had about 150 vendors. Now, Italy is unique in terms of European nations because there's a, a large concentration of unique manufacturing happening there that didn't seem to be the case with other countries. Now, when I went to Spain at 17, uh, Saint Seiya was huge, and you could find Saint Seiya figurines and comic books on every newsstand. And, uh, you know, uh, France, uh, Spain, Germany a little bit, Italy, Portugal, they imported a lot of Japanese uh, 70s cartoons. So there is a sort of built-up fan base there. And, uh, you know, Italy, though, more than other places, seem to embark on a lot of unique manufacturing. They have a gigantic toy distributor, Giacchi Preziosi. They're also a manufacturer. And they've made a ton of stuff over the years. Uh, They have Panini, which, you know, do the sticker books, but a ton of collectibles as well. Uh, There's also famously the Gig company, G-I-G, which has made some truly interesting and bizarre figures over the years, including these quasi-micronaut magna figures based on the Black Hole by Disney, which are incredibly hard to find. So... Italy, more than other European countries, has this unique pedigree for toy manufacturing and unique IP and things like that. But unfortunately, uh, I really didn't come across anything outside of Gourmeti that was particularly interesting or, you know, unique in any in any way. Back in Venice, I did get to go to uh, Creature di Gomo, Creatures Made of Plastic, which is a museum. Got to chat a little bit with the person working there. And they had a huge retrospective and uh, gallery of all types of action figures. Now, they focused a a great deal on 80s American toys, which to me is not particularly interesting. I've seen these all before, you know. But it's cool to see them all together in a well-lit glass case. But they also had a huge comprehensive history of all these sort of Sofubi-type figures that were made in Italy, a lot of bendy figures, like there was a a very cool amount of things I had never seen before at this museum. However, nothing was on sale, of course. So um, it was a bit bit bittersweet to to see all this. They had an incredibly impressive uh, collection of Shogun warriors, um, several of which, you know, there's later European uh, jumbo figures that were not released in the United States. to see them all together is, is pretty, uh, you know, pretty impressive. So overall, fantastic trip. Would highly recommend Italy, but I would also recommend going to smaller, less popular areas of the country. Uh, it's uh, pretty molto bene, as they say. Okay, one more funny anecdote about Italy before I move on to some questions that have been stacking up in the Discord. Uh, So obviously, it became pretty clear to me pretty quickly that all those incredibly unique and interesting and foreign 
Italian toys that I'd never heard or seen of were not going to manifest on this trip. I figured that out pretty quickly after visiting a couple shops. Uh, however, I held out one hope for Kinder Eggs. Now, Kinder Eggs are not that rare anymore. We, we are able to get them in the United States, but for many, many years they were outlawed here. They were considered a choking hazard, but I suspect that was probably some legislation uh, lobbied for by people like Hershey to keep a foreign chocolate company, Ferrero Rocher in this case, out of the U.S. market. Um, so I figured, well, you know, maybe I'm not going to find anything terribly interesting, but I bet I can find some really cool Kinder Eggs and maybe some European-only Kinder toys. I, I do have a big collection of Kinder stuff from Europe and from the 80s. They really have made some phenomenal figures. It's kind of a... I mean, most of their stuff is pretty lame and goofy, but every now and then you get something really pretty fantastic. So I was like, well, you know, all these toy shops, they have Funko Pop and they have Marvel and they have, you know, all these big U.S. brands. I bet at least I'll find some interesting Kinder items. Every single store I went in, what do you think the Kinder Egg surprise was? It was miniature... Funko Pop Harry Potter figures. <laughs> and this was everywhere. Um, the only different Kinder Egg prizes I found were at an airport, but those were the gigantic jumbo eggs, and I did not have any room in my luggage to uh, get any of those. But literally every single Kinder display I saw and every product they had there was a Harry Potter Funko Pop minifigure. So, uh, utter defeat. I, I'm sorry, I, I think I'm going to have to become an anti-globalist in this regard because uh, we are losing all uniqueness in these foreign marketplaces. Pretty sad. Uh, but anyway, another digression for me. I'm going to move on now, as I promised, to a couple of questions that have been put up in the Discord. What is Discord? You might be asking yourself. It is a top-secret message board you can only access by being a member of patreon.com slash Stasio. But by the way, it is currently free to sign up. Uh, free subs do not get all the bells and whistles. Probably be left out at most pre-orders and things like that. But is a good way to follow our public posts and things like that. So let's see if we can't tackle this right this very moment with some questions. First up, we got Skywalker. Sorry, Skywalking73. Controversial question here. I've bought several corpse bags. Got a bunch of... Legs, arms, torsos here and there, tons of heads, no crotch pieces. Where have all the crotch pieces gone? Can we get a crotch bag? I can Frankenslice all day long with a crotch bag. This is a this is hilarious, but true. Um, yes, there there is a lack. It's not necessarily just crotches. It is sort of the legs and crotches. There is probably a deficiency of those out in the open piece market, and it is something that I have struggled to kind of. Uh, figure out how to best uh, meet the demand of that. There were a lot of early Frankenslice figures that were very popular and had sort of high demand uh, that did not have uh, a unique crotch piece to them. So typically I would sort of steal that crotch piece off of material style figures and those would just kind of get, get uh, threshed apart and put into future hollow bags or things like that. So uh, there is sort of, you're 100% right. It's not just a, it's something you're imagining. There is kind of a, a definite 
lack of that uh, happening. The other thing also is that, um, you know, we have a bunch of sort of upper halves and chest pieces that can be run by themselves, whether it's the sort of accessory parts to Saima, um, or maybe some other things that haven't been revealed yet. Uh, there is sort of, you know, there's kind of like a per part cost analysis you have to do. Like, how much can I spend on smaller, non-complete figure parts that will give me the most sort of bang for my buck? They will introduce a new character or they will move the story along. Heads are always a great investment because a head changes the entire feel of a figure instantly, right? So something like the Shrubium uh, pack is a great way to spend some extra money because you're going to get four different characters instantaneously. Uh, secondary to that is a chess piece. You know, it, it really communicates something much different. Think about the female Saima chess piece uh, versus her default chess piece, which is kind of that flatter, uh, more robotic uh, chess piece. You swap those two out, and it's saying something very different about the character almost instantly. It's engendering the character in a way. So uh, that's usually where the money is spent, and then there has been a lack of connecting pieces uh, at the crotch level. So um, I'm not going to tool a new crotch. I don't think that's in uh, the grand scheme of things, but there may be some solutions coming along the way uh, down the road. What you may have noticed is that like a lot of uh, later Franken-style slices just simply include a material-style figure plus new painted pieces. And that's going to become more and more commonplace as we move forward. Instead of me taking the time to separate all these things, uh, you know, material style figures are relatively cheap, so I can just kind of run one of those, bundle it with new painted pieces, and let the an audience put it together. And so that's kind of where my head is at lately and where I think a lot of these sort of Franken-slices and limited edition figures are going to go because it's just it's so much easier for me, even if I'm losing... A little bit of margin and a couple cents on every figure um, it certainly uh, outweighs in the positive next up we got a question from wolfman toys i have decided to focus 100 percent on my efforts to become a professional toy maker it has been a dream of mine for a very long time i've sat around dreaming about it and not doing any of the work required to make that dream come true all ideas no follow-through i've decided to put that to an end i do not want to look back and regret ever not ever chasing the stream. My question is this, what is the one skill I should learn that other toy makers value most so that I can get a job and get hired? My gut tells me it's 3D sculpting. I should probably follow my gut. So I'm fully on board with this. I think this is a, this is a great goal to have. I think you're in the right community to kind of foster your journey along this road. Um, while I, I can't claim any credit for this, and obviously this is a person with great skills prior to sort of being in the uh, squires of the slice. David White is a great example, Mechazone. He is a full-time employed sculptor for Super 7, and David just grinded away at his artwork, at his toy design for years and years and years, and, and he did achieve the dream. I also think there's a couple uh, younger squires of the slice that are well on their way to doing this. But I, I think that there's an important framing that needs to happen with this question and and what you laid out here. 
I think your focus should not be to be a professional toy maker. Your focus should be to be a toy maker because one absolutely has to come before the other. Uh, your gut instinct is correct. You should be absolutely diving into 3D sculpting and figuring that out. If you need a very cost-effective way to start that, get an iPad, get the iPencil, and get Nomad. It is a pretty fantastic and robust program, and uh, I use it quite a bit in my work. Now, there are, more, there are better programs for 3D sculpting that are gonna do a lot more, but in terms of portability, uh, you can't beat that. You can be working all the time. And the other thing is, Nomad is a lot more stable than some of the desktop 3D programs. I've had anybody who's worked in 3D sculpting at any time will tell you things often crash, they don't render correctly. There's any number of technical difficulties that happen. For whatever reason, Nomad runs incredibly smooth. So I would point to starting there. It, maybe you already have an iPad and a pencil, and that might be you know a good way to go about it. But in any case, um, to, to hop backwards just a little bit, the professional toy maker versus toy maker thing, this is very important distinction you have to sort of make for yourself because it takes about 10 years to cultivate a professional career. Now that's not to say that's gonna be your timeline. It could happen much sooner, could take much longer, but generally people are grinding away for about a decade before there is some sort of monetary uh, uptick that allows them to focus more of their life on uh, the things that they love. Th this has certainly been the case for me. Um, I mean, I, I think probably took me about, mm, I wanna say 17 years to be able to do Knights of the Slice full time in the capacity that I currently do it at. So I, I think that that's important to realize you have steps ahead of you that are non-professional and super crucial to the entire process. Uh, prior to Knights of the Slice, I set myself the goal of what I called the 100 Heroes Project. And my goal was to sculpt 100 statues and eventually work my way up to something that had a little bit of articulation. And that was gonna be my entire process. And, it wasn't necessarily something I was going to share, let alone sell, but it was kind of a, a ambitious project to embark on so that I could get better at sculpting, better at design, better at everything else. And the funny thing is, probably about 20 heroes into the 100 Heroes project is when Knights of the Slice happened. You know, we were able to do that because we had this big audience on YouTube. I had friends and factory connections and it just kind of came together. And so the 100 Heroes project ended up, you could say not happening or morphing into what is Knights of the Slice, which I think we can all agree there have been more than 100 ideas and characters uh, communicated within this universe. The other thing is that's super important that I tell everybody that's going down this path. I mean, we can look at Carolina Coolcat, who I think is probably leading the sophomore class of toy designers who have kind of stepped up their game and, and started inching towards this as being a hobby first and then kind of much more than that. Uh, what I told our good friend is you gotta take a year and you gotta do resin releases. You gotta set up at every show you can and you have to build up at least a hundred customers. 
Customers are much different than followers or subscribers or people on a mailing list. Customers are people that are guaranteed to buy your stuff. And it takes a very long time to do that, but that is sort of the first component to all of this. You want to have a foundation of people that are going to support any move you make and they're going to do so by buying things. And it's very, very hard to get people to notice your work, let alone to get people to buy it. So really think of the first 12 months as a sort of boot camp where you're going to set up at every show you can. You're going to go and attend anything that's remotely relevant to this pursuit. And uh, you're going to have something to sell there. I don't know what that is. Maybe it's just a small resin release. Maybe it's Ashcan Comics. Whatever the case may be, uh, that is the place to do it. I, I think places like San Diego Comic-Con, Designer Con, these are really crucial because you can also talk to the old guard. You know, you can go show your work to James Groman. You know, he's always very friendly and, and very helpful with things like that. Uh, Toy Pizza Con, you can, you know, talk with Rack, the creator of Shikan. You can talk to Matt Dowdy. Like, I, I think you need a good 12 to 18 months making the circuit, you know, introducing yourself, getting, getting, just absorbing all the knowledge of people that are doing this uh, as much as possible. The other thing is that 3D printing does require capital to do. So I always dissuade anybody from having their pursuit of a dream be uh, the only work that they do, you know. Because I had to work my entire career alongside my creative pursuits. And also, I've had to go back to regular mundane work when my creative projects were not sort of churning out the same amount of income that I needed to survive, quite frankly. And there's no shame in that. I mean, we, we have to sort of support doing the things we love with menial labor, if necessary. Now, I don't know that that's your situation. I'm sure you, you know probably realize that, but I have had younger people come up to me and just decide, oh, I, this is going to be what I do now, so how do I start, how does Hasbro start paying me? And, you know, I always think that, I think culturally we have a real uh, shame attachment to the idea of having day jobs uh, to support what we love doing, but it is 100% necessary, especially for a pursuit in toys. Now, you may be a very good 3D sculptor, but you're going to need a 3D printer as well. That's going to cost money. You're going to need to be able to output for your clients prototypes and things like that. You're going to need to be able to take, you know, photography of physical items, not just screenshots. So there's a lot of stuff that's attached to this pursuit that is going to cost a lot of money. And so I think it's important for people to know that you have to supplement the following of your dream with real work in, you know, the uh, the very mundane job market. I, I myself am not immune to this. The final thing I'll say is lean on the community, especially on Discord. Uh, you know, Gordon McKinnon Hall is another great example of a guy who really wanted to start doing this stuff. And so he took my advice. He started going to life drawing classes. He started learning 3D. He's working on a bunch of projects for a bunch of people. And, and really within this community of the Squires of the Slice. So post your work in progress stuff. You know, ask people what tutorial videos do they watch. There is a, you are in the same sort of class as a bunch of other highly creative people. And so I really continue to encourage people to share and, you know, help each other do this. Because 
that's how my class got to where we are. You know, all of us, sort of, all of the present-day glios makers all bounced ideas off of each other, all relied on the expertise of Matt Dowdy. You know, it's, it is about community. That's sort of where it takes an idea and makes it real. It's, it's by having a brain trust of different creative types that can, you know, help you guide your way through this. The other thing is you might need graphic design help, you might need any number of things, and there are really creative people that do a lot of different stuff within this community. Ryan Rusby, uh, you know, he may not be a, a toy creator, but he is a fantastically talented motion graphics designer and theatrical lighting expert, and he has collaborated with my music project, Z Star 7, to create all the crazy visuals that you see when we're doing a Twitch stream. You know, a lot of those are live projected onto us as we're sort of playing music. So um, there's a bunch of people within this community that all like the same stuff that you like, that have various skills, and together people can kind of work in unison and produce something bigger. So I hope all this information helps you and helps the other people that are looking to take a step into, you know, fulfilling a dream. I think it's absolutely something that can be done. I think that there's a long road ahead of you, but if your vision is pure, that's not going to deter you. You're going to understand there's a cost of time that has to be put into this. So uh, I think you're in the right place at the right time. You have the right community around you, and uh, I think we're going to see some very good stuff coming out of you. So don't be shy. Be sure to share what you're working on. Ask for advice from the community, and uh, hopefully we'll have yet another toy maker blossom by the time we have the next Toy Pizza Con in uh, July 2024. Speaking of incredibly talented, established artists, we got a question here from Ian Amling. Ian is uh, probably one of the best concept artists in the business, having done a lot of work for Blizzard and all sorts of different companies. Ian asks, design a night. What are the chances we'll see this again? Is there a chance this could be modified to create a card for slicer decks or design a die for custom dice that's just made its debut hope all is well with you thank you ian same to you um so uh it's an interesting question so what we have done in the past is when the patreon hit a certain milestone we did a design a night contest where people got to vote and then we came up with what would be a exclusive style of figure uh, we've done this twice. The second one, we designed a two-pack of figures, so that was pretty cool. But that milestone was for 250 patrons. And the truth is, uh, Patreon is getting rid of goals, right? On the page, it shows, okay, if we make it to X, this will happen for the community. They're getting rid of that feature. So it's not going to be something that can be publicly tracked. However, I am fully open to another Design and Night competition. Uh, I think it needs to be at 300 patrons because the Patreon number kind of fluctuates between 200 and 275. And given the month, it can change by 30 patrons. It, it's really been a crazy sort of two years. So um, I think it has to be a milestone that's impressive and that we can hit and that is worthy of celebration. And in my mind, that's 300 patrons. So... You guys can help us get to that goal by sharing what you get from Patreon. Uh, you know, when you get your Action Figure of the Millennia Club boxes, 
post those pictures, use the hashtags that are relevant to it. That really helps attract new people to what we're doing and hopefully will get us over that milestone and get us to uh, 300. Um, now, regarding the design tonight being a create a card or create a custom die, uh, we have the blank cards available in the store, I think. They should still be in stock. We have more of those coming. So it is relatively easy for people to draw their own cards. There's a great one I saw from OmniRes. Um, so, you know, and, and also given that when we do a Kickstarter campaign for uh, card slicers, there is a design and night slice, and usually those are pretty popular. I'm not sure the novelty of that for tying that to a milestone in Patreon is enough to attract enough people because they kind of get to experience that already in one of two ways. Um, designing a custom die, I, I'm kind of not really war, I'm not too warm on that idea. One, because I just finished the hob die and it was kind of a lot of work, surprisingly. So, you know, there are, there's plenty of services out there, uh, that you can order custom die from. Just Google it. There's, you know, any number of US based, uh, fronts that will manufacture your custom die. I personally just went to Alibaba and rolled the dice, pun intended, on a brand new factory that makes die. I had no idea if they were going to rip me off and disappear, but they didn't. The die arrived and they look fucking great. So if anyone was really motivated to do this, there are services that will make you just a run of however many you want. You're going to pay a premium, obviously, but... Uh, you know, it's not that hard to achieve, and, and I don't think that special for the community. Especially when you compare it to something as dramatic as a week-long voting round-robin where we decide what's going to be the next Night of the Slice figure. Um, so these are good ideas, but I think we're going to stick with the traditional design of night for a 4-inch figure. And uh, I will let everybody know how we're shaping up towards that 300 patrons when I, I detect a sort of uptick in enrolling. And of course, I come back from this wonderful trip in Europe where I'm completely disconnected to anything happening in this country, had a wonderful time, ate a ton of food, feeling pretty chill. And then I wake up this morning to the really terrible news that uh, Amy from Lulabelle Toys was murdered by her husband, shot and killed. Uh, just fucking terrible. Uh, Amy always seemed to be a real bright spot to conventions. I, I didn't know her well, but always would go to the booth and buy a couple things and chat with her. And uh, she just seemed like a, a bright spot in the universe. And uh, so it's just fucking terrible. But that is very apropos. I come back from another country to the news of gun violence and, uh, you know, somebody snuffed out before their time. So that's a fucking bummer. But in any case, uh, I'm going to go. I'm on a manic mission to play some music tonight at Club Draw in Beacon if I don't pass out from jet lag. So uh, i got to get back to writing the great song in the sky. I'm going to leave everybody today with a track from Zed Star 7. If for some reason you like this... You can check out our album, Seven Songs, on Spotify, iTunes, and everywhere else. Or, if you want, probably 200 deep cuts, live rehearsals, live sets, demos, 
You can check out soundcloud.com slash zstar7. There's a ton of free content there. I will leave you all now. I say good day, and I say pizza out. Pizza out.